I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> you forgot to say please. Ron Young goes. <laughs> and welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 172. Uh, Ron, sorry, I was just too excited. Just This is one of the things that I've learned over doing this 100 and, what did I say, 172 episodes of this Guns N' Roses themed uh, podcast of just finding out about people that maybe I heard of and learning more about them and just be making me more a fan of just the scene in general. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Brando, uh, introducing Ron Young on the other line. Uh, not just, I wouldn't even say the most famous for, uh, most famous scene perhaps in the uh, the Terminator franchise, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. That was you who got the cojones to hit uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the back of the head with a, uh, a pull cue, and they get thrown through the uh, the window. Yeah, and I got, I got to do it. like I got to hit him like a dozen times. It was a lot of fun. While they got the shot, you know. <laughs> so. I know. We'll, we'll deal. We'll dive deeper into that. But first, uh, you know, you're here because of Little Caesar, Little Caesar band, uh, a band that's. When did you guys first get together? It was the late '80s, right? Yeah, late '80s. We formed in like '88, and we we got signed over a whole bunch of hoopla because of all these big guys that were working with us, you know. And our debut record came out in 1990, and by really by 92, our career was totally in the toilet because of a lot of ego battles with guys like David Geffen and John Kalodner and Jimmy Iovine and all these people we had working with the band who started to fight. And then at the end of the day, we were the carcass that was laying on the ground after they went through oh. their little spats, but. Whatever, it it's, uh, makes for good stories, you know. So I suppose so, I but saying, you're still doing what you love because you're still out and about with Little Caesar touring. Yeah, so yeah, it's but still touring, still putting out records. Um, you know, we're we're really grateful that we get to do that. You know, we we love playing with each other, and we have such great fans, and you know, we have a really small and loyal fan base, and we just keep plugging at it, and and it's great, man. We're we're just we're having a great time. One of the things that I, I do with this podcast is I get people involved, listeners involved. So I, I want to acknowledge him uh, before I uh, still, uh, you know, forget, which I, I shouldn't forget. Uh, but Anderson is a listener of ours from San Antonio, Texas. And he, you know, I, I solicit guest uh, suggestions. 
and you can be on the podcast with me. You can co-host it with me. So Anderson's was going to be on the episode today, but I want to give him credit with, you know, because we've been talking about Slash's Snake Pit recently, and it's mm. it was the the anniversary. It was just the other day. It might have been like the 25th anniversary. Well, I I look it up, but there's so many there's so much history in there. We've done this with Velvet Revolver, people who've tried out. And it's just uh, kind of like a six degrees of GNR bacon with me, Ron. Like, yeah, 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 no, I guess. Whatever it. connection I can do, you know, just to make it fun to have the, the, the nucleus of something that's consistent instead of just being a generic rock show and seeing where it takes us. So that's why it took me to Terminator 2. And I, I would have been just, I don't know, I have like OCD. I would have been just thinking about it and it would have been distracting me this entire time and, and unless I got it out <laughs> right away. I gotcha. But yeah, there's, I have a connection to Slash. Um, Oddly enough, I back before he even got in, in GNR, I met him at this little deli here in Hollywood. We talked about putting a band together, and that didn't come about. And then years later, after you know GNR had their you know time of disbanding, and Slash was going to go off and do Snake Pit, he was auditioning singers, and he auditioned like a hundred guys. And out of nowhere, I got a phone call from Mike Clink, who produced Appetite. Mm. And said, you know what, you just dawned on me and I'm going to talk to Slash about it. So we got together and he was really excited. We were writing songs together. It was actually a really strange audition because he wouldn't let anybody. it, It was like you come up to his house. He was living up at the Hollywood Hills at the time. And you go up to his house and you heard no music. And on the spot, you bring up a microphone and you he would play you song ideas and you had to write something and sing it. So it was really kind of nerve-wracking, you know? It's like, go, be creative. Wow. And so we were doing that, and he's like, man, this stuff is really cool. I really dig your voice. And oddly enough, about two weeks later was the big Northridge earthquake. And um, I went up to his house, and he was kind of freaking out because all his snake cages crashed to the ground. And he had, like, black black mambas and cobras. (laughs) I mean... And he's freaking out. He's like, dude, there are deadly poisonous snakes. And I'm like, well, what are we doing standing up? It's like Indiana Jones. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Right. He goes, no, that's why we're standing in the driveway, dude. I want to see him coming. But he had like a 15-foot python that was living underneath his staircase and this glass case. And anyway, they all crashed to the ground. The house wound up getting uh, red tagged, and he had to move out. Wow. Um so that was a crazy thing. And then, yeah, I went in, started to do some stuff in the studio. And then it was with Mike and Ez, you know, all these guys. And he's like, dude, you know, I'm thinking about this more and more. And he's like, I, I just don't think this is going to work because you don't sound like Axel. And when I go out and do this, the fans are going to want to hear all of those Guns N' Roses songs. And I'm going to have to give it to them. I just, I have to. Huh. And so I'm going to go with a singer that's got a little bit more of a tonal quality like Axel. It's not anything. And I was like, dude, I don't, I get it. I'm, I don't take this shit personally. It's all fine. And so it, it didn't happen. So he went you know, with the guy from Jellyfish. And uh, yeah, yeah. So it was like one of those real close, but never happened. That's so interesting. Because now as I bring it up and I posted this, uh, this on our social media. So as we were recording this two days ago. Uh, was the anniversary of a slash of snake pit. It's five o'clock somewhere, February fourteenth, nineteen ninety five. That's when it came out, and as you alluded to, uh, Eric Dover is who they got. 
it's just right. you know it, there's obviously it's all original material it's not like it's a covers record but the fact that he needed someone to sound like Axel just to yeah. cover for those songs yeah for when they toured you know which he still does like with, which is interesting yeah, with Miles Kennedy with and Miles Kennedy yeah right, with Miles yeah wow. so you know and and I had total respect for that he's like listen man you know um this is my side project but a huge part of me and my soul and, and my creativity is in GNR and you know, we're not out playing anymore. People come and see me, they're gonna to want to hear those songs. I can't say no, oh that's like my that's the other band. I was like, no, I totally get it. So he was really I mean he's he's a super, super nice, sweet guy. Um incredibly talented, incredibly nice guy, one of the quote unquote good ones, you know, because we could bring up twenty names of guys who appear to be real jerks and he's not one of them. He's a great guy. Yeah, I've never so, heard anything bad. Yeah, no. Nah, he he. So he felt really bad, and I'm like, hey, dude, you know, your music, your career, your music, all of that's <laughs> paramount to you, and I totally get it. No offense taken, you know. So, do you, do you remember with that crazy audition that you had? And I thought I had one here, and uh, at radio, just a quick, you know, meaningless side story compared to yours. But I came here and I had to do an an audio editing, uh, like interview, like on the spot kind of thing, and. It was the right. upgraded version of what I normally use. So it was the same but different enough that I was not comfortable and get through it. Right. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't find the function. <laughs> it's like, oh, where did they put this thing now? I know. But yeah, I'm, no, I'm here. I'm that. here. <laughs> uh, but right. do, do you remember what you wrote about, perhaps, or anything interesting about the, the songs that you put forth as your audition? Nothing that that I can remember because it was such it's so long ago and it's it such a short window of time. He just brought up all these song ideas, and the strange thing was he was really chopping at the bit. He was under a lot of pressure from Geffen Records to get a record out, um, and so he was getting a lot of pressure from you know half the band wanted to go completely away from Axel the other half wanted to go for a guy like Axel Geffen was pushing him to do the record was pushing Mike Clink and get the and so the song the songs weren't even finished really being written by the time we went in and started laying some tracks down in the studio so I don't remember I know that Eric rewrote all of that stuff but he was you know really digging the stuff that I was writing and you know, most of the lyrics were just kind of just throwaway words that fit into a rhythm. It wasn't even really the final words, but he was just really liking the energy of it and the flow of it and the sound of it. And he was excited because he, at the time he was really frustrated that, you know, he'd literally gone through like a hundred guys and just none of it was, you know, was exciting him, you know? So he was getting really kind of frustrated and depressed about that. Well, it's good and that so, you excited well, him. And I, yeah. yeah, and then somebody, you know, um, suggested Eric to him, and you know, he reached out to him. So, but um, yeah, it was it was really just kind of a, and, and then of course with the earthquake and you know the snakes and the <laughs> oh, and Jumanji his over there, being, his house being you know declared unlivable, and he had to move all his stuff out and buy a new house. He was renting a house. So it was kind of a bit of a crazy time and the studio, you know, and the label pushing him to really knock out a record. So it was really kind of a hectic time for him. And he, he was definitely torn of which way to go and how to, you know, who should he try to make happy. So, you know, the usual behind the scenes and, you know, music business pressure stuff, you know, so I, I had total empathy for that. 
because, you know, especially going through our nightmare with Geffen, I knew exactly what he was talking about and who he was talking about mm-hmm. and the personalities involved, which I think made him feel kind of kind of cool, too, that I understood because, you know, because of the players behind the scenes on it, so... There must be some sort of uh, brotherhood in labels and just going through this, you know, going through the same kind of war, war stories and, and dodging the same landmines. You know, you feel comfort in, in a way. Yes. You don't want to go through it, but there's comfort in knowing that you're not the only one, not to use yeah. November Wing lyric. And the other interesting thing is, is uh, um, I've, I am and with friends with Alan Niven, who is managing him. He's been um, on the show a few times. Very nice guy. Yeah, Alan. Oh, Alan, he, he loves to talk. He knows a lot of <laughs> stuff and loves to tell you about it. He's a great guy. Very creative. He's been very guy. nice to me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he's musically creative as well as his business savvy. But, you know, he he loves to talk about how, you know, GNR was like a throwaway for the label. They didn't see the potential in them. They released that first single like three times. And Alan tells the story about how, you know, when they hit gold, the label was like, okay, let's stop promoting this. This has gone way farther than we ever thought. And Alan's like, you've got a platinum record on your hand, and you're just completely letting this go. And he really beat him and beat him and beat him till they really jumped behind the record, and then it just exploded. It really, really took off. So that sort of short-sighted mentality that was fairly frustrating, you know, we, we could commiserate. Uh, and especially because it was coming from certain power players at the label that, you know, really kind of short-sighted, very egotistical. You know, you don't you don't find out about a lot of this stuff until you get into business with people. And, you know, you come to find out that a lot of these guys behind the scenes, they look at themselves, you know, with, with a bigger ego than the actual artists that are stereotypically the ones with the ego. I never got uh, that. I never got that. Go- yeah, to negotiate that, you know, you know, guys like David Geffen and you know, and John Kalabi, who is an A and R guy, you know, all of these people that they've worked with, um, you know, they really think that they're something. You know, they create their their star makers, their power players, and you know, if you have a difference of opinion, it's a really difficult thing to negotiate. Alan was a master at it, and. You know, it's just it's just that kind of crazy stuff that goes on, and you know, me and Flash used to have fun just sitting around talking, you know, talking shit about these people. <laughs> just going, oh yeah, that guy did this one time, and blah, blah, blah. so it was kind of funny. Do you recall? Because you, you mentioned it was about a hundred guys, which is more than I I read about. I was reading that you were one of forty, so that's that's obviously a lot more than I, I initially thought. Was there a, like a buzz around? that Slash was auditioning people and perhaps, you know, people are throwing their hat in the ring or do you remember, recall any notable names that may have tried it out that we may not know no, about? I, you know, I, no notable names. I mean, it was done really quiet for a while and it was trying to, it was trying to be kept under wraps and then the word started getting out and I had heard so many different stories one way or the other because, you know, people are saying, oh, he's just doing this to try to get Axel to come back and kiss makeup. You know, look at me. I'm going to put this other band and I'll show you, which was all BS. You yeah. know, yeah. he was just dying to make music and frustrated that they couldn't work out all their personal stuff. And was like, I have a, I have a career. I got to play, man. I can't just sit around. And so, you, you know, you hear all these rumors and stuff floating around Hollywood and 
after months and months of it, you just go, whatever, I guess it'll be what it'll be. So I never, you know, I never put any energy into reaching out to him. Um, Cause I don't know at the time I just kind of felt, Oh, listen, you know, he knows me. If he, you know, if he's interested, he'll get in touch with me. And when we first got together, he was like real apologetic. Dude, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry. I never even thought about you. And no, 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 <laughs> whatever, dude. Uh, you know, whatever. I was, you know, a blip on the radar of Geffen for for all of six months. And you know, he's out and about at all the clubs, and I was laying low. And so all these guys are throwing themselves in the space, going do do do, you know. And so it wasn't really, you know, something that just came right right to mind. And whatever, so be it, you know. There's another close call that you had. And again, I, I, I preface this with something I said earlier is that the fact that you're still doing it now is, is really living the dream. You know, we've talked about uh, probably with Alan amongst other guests, you know, how do you define success and all these different things? Uh, but we, we just call it a, a close call as far as uh, it's fun to play. What if, what would the trajectory of a very famous band, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? That Correct, you, yeah. I never see. I thought, I wish I, t- I spoke about them more on this podcast. Obviously, it's Surrender Out uh, Guns N' Roses, but I've, but if it connects, we've spoken so much about Kiss and all these other acts. Chili Peppers, right, right. one of my favorite bands, and I, I don't say that often enough on this show. And, you know, despite, I know, Ron, you're a little older than me. Uh, 36, I'm 36, so California yeah, a Kate. Little, a, a little bit, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, you're, you're, you're a ripe 38, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For many years, uh-huh. but <laughs> despite it being before my time, the early Chili Peppers are probably my my favorite era. You know, when it was really funky. They're working with George Clinton, and you know, and when we talk about and we still pay respect uh, to and rightfully so, uh, we, artists that we lost too young, like recently, I believe it was the anniversary of Cliff Burton. We don't talk enough about Hillel Slovak. I, I, I feel in in the in the public eye. So you got a chance to. Be in the Red Hot Chili Peppers when Anthony was kicked out, wasn't there, and you worked with Hillel. I, 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 please yeah, tell me. Well, I'm what, trying to wrap what, my mind around yeah, this. What had happened was, you know, they were they were trying to break the band. They were trying to get things going. Anthony wound up just kind of becoming a personal mess with his with, with heroin and stuff. And they were really, really frustrated with him. Now, I'll preface it all by saying that, you know, Anthony and Flea are their brothers. You know, I mean, they... They grew up together. They're incredibly close and tight. And Flea was incredibly frustrated, both for what the toll it was taking on their music and, and him personally. So the band decided to to switch singers, you know. And one of the things Flea wanted to do was to get more of a traditional singer, where Anthony really isn't. He's more of a rapper personality, lots of delivery but not really from a classical sense, a, you know, a melody singing kind of guy. So if he was going to switch gears, he wanted somebody that had a little bit more of a, of a traditional so they could do more melodic type stuff and expand their repertoire. So I went down, auditioned, you know, everybody dug it. Um, they gave me a whole batch of songs to, and I wrote, that whole Uplift Mofo Party Plan record, I wrote melodies and lyrics over every one of those songs. Wow. And we were just about to go in the studio with Michael Beinhorn at Capitol, 
if we were rehearsing at Capo, we were getting doing pre-production. And during that whole time, Anthony went to rehab. And Anthony came out and had a great attitude and was way healthier and was committed to staying sober. And rightfully so, he was like, listen, man, you know, this is my brother. This is, and the stuff we were doing was really different than what Anthony would have done with it, what Anthony did with it. So, okay. again, I totally, totally understood it. But it was an incredible experience working with those guys, working with Hillel, because then Hillel wound up overdosing shortly thereafter. Mm, right. And, you know, it just, it's just kind of strange because you would think after seeing Anthony get sober and how much healthier he was, how much better singing he was, and much less drama going on in his life, that that would have been a good example for him. But, you know, nobody ever plans to overdose. I have my own drug problems. So, you know, it just, just kind of comes with the territory where you can't really see the forest from the trees. So, you know, it was just so they, when Anthony got out, they just wound up, you know, getting back together with him. And they just said, man, you know, please just call them to do this. It's just, this is the only right thing for this band. I was like, I don't disagree, dude. He's great. You know, um, and he is more of what the Red Hot Chili Peppers are. And sure enough, they went on to become even more individualistic, more iconic, more unique. Where I think if I was in the band, they wouldn't be, you know? Mm-hmm. So, again, a, a great experience. It's funny. One of the funny things was one of the first questions Fleece was like, so do you have a problem going out to do a show only wearing a sock? <laughs> I was like, no, fuck it, dude. If you guys are all doing that, I'll just put a sock around my penis and go out there and get the rest of you guys. Sure, why not? So there you go. But one of the most important things he ever said to me, and to this day, it's one of the most powerful things anybody's ever said to me. Before we started playing, he goes, listen, our attitude in this band is every note we play, from rehearsal to shows to the studio, every note we play, we play like it's the last time we're ever going to get to play music. That's the kind of passion and energy and intensity you have to put in to every note you send. And I thought that was incredibly dedicated, insightful, powerful, passionate. And it stuck with me ever since. So great piece of advice and a great attitude from him, you know. You know, now that I really think about it, and we're, I'm skipping past the music part, but just why, and I wish uh, they, they came up more on on the podcast just so I could talk about them. I don't know if I want to do a spin-off Chili Peppers podcast, but they're, they're so passionate. The music is so yeah. passionate and just the aura that Fleet gives off and and uh, and Anthony, and, and I was lucky enough to, to meet Chad. I didn't get to interview him, but I got to meet him. He... He spread his legs apart so he can be kind of uh, level with me because he's, what is he, like 6'4", six, 6'3", six, something? Yeah, he's, and, a, he's a big dude. And I'm 5'6". Yeah. So oh, there you go. I'm 5'8", so I, I, know, you're, I know the way it feels. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. It's actually my profile picture on Facebook, and and I love it because he not once looked at the camera. He was talking to somebody else, but his arm was draped around me, and he was just like, take the picture. And there's like a bunch of them like that, and I'm smiling like a goon, and he just doesn't look at the camera at all. Uh, too funny. But what was – um? Can you? is there anything about Hillel that you want to, I guess, share? Because, again, like what kind of 
creative force was he? Because I, I, we don't talk about him enough. We talk about the Kurt Cobain. Yeah. We talk about Alice, Coo- uh, Alice Cooper. Uh, uh, Lane Staley, rather. I was thinking Alice in Chains. Uh, so what about Hillel should we know about today, essentially? Well, what, what was great about Hillel, see, what, what's great about the Chili Peppers is there's so much rhythm that goes on, you know, from a sort of insightful musical thing. The thing in any sort of musical outlet, a bass player is incredibly important because that's the bridge between the drummer, the rhythm section, you know, the rhythm machine, and melody because he plays notes and chords and such. So the bass player is incredibly important. And with Flea being the iconic, monstrously great bass player that he is, and at the time it was Jack Irons on drums, who's an amazing drummer. And then Hillel, who, in the same way, phenomenal feel and rhythm to his playing, as well as an accomplished guitar player. And, you know, at the time, I mean, because the same thing with Little Caesar. I am a huge fan of old rhythm and blues and soul and blues music and really more soulful-based music. Flea is a huge fan of funk and soul and rhythm and blues. And so that's why we got on really well. He tries to insert that into all his music. And Hillel as well. And just an incredibly talented. Remember, at this time period, it was the Motley Crue's and the Eddie Van Halen's. The focus was on shredded guitar players, really impressive, fast, you know. And Hillel was a more of a field-based player. He could play stuff, just a funky, you know, kind of part, and then put a blistering solo over it that was really appropriate for the music. And that was very unique back then. The focus wasn't on that kind of guitar player. So that's why I was, I felt so comfortable with those guys just from the musical standpoint, because we would just break out James Brown songs and stuff. And, you know, back then it was, you know, Sabbath and Van Halen and, you know, so to be with a bunch of guys in LA who were in a rock band that appreciated all that kind of music, and oddly enough, two years later is when I put Little Caesar together saying, listen, I can't look like a woman. I got a goatee and I ride a Harley. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, don't look good in lipstick and hairspray. So I got to put a rough and tumble kind of band together. And I want the band to be blues-based, soul-based and blues-based, not pop metal-based, which is what was huge in L.A. It was all Poison and Warren, mm-hmm. Pretty Boy Floyd and all these other bands. And quite honestly, I didn't relate to that music. It was two major scales and, you know, a lot about the way you looked and the lyrical content was, look at us, we're loaded 24-7 and we got strippers all over us. And I was like, I'm more of an old school blues-based guy. And so for me, it was Paul Rogers and, you know, guys like that that were more soul-based guys. So I put Little Caesar together as sort of the anti-glam metal band at the time, and that's one of the reasons why we got as much attention that we did, because we really kind of stood out from that field. So guys like Hillel and Flea in L.A. were really the, you know, the guys that were keeping the candle lit for all of that funk, blues, and soul kind of stuff and doing it so great. Hence the the blues uh, connection, I guess you're most famously for, the uh, Aretha Franklin cover of Chain yeah, of Fools. Yeah, our cover of Chain of Fools, which, yeah. Which is uh, obviously so good. But I'm, I'm curious, did you go to uh, Fairfax High School? No, I'm a New York boy. Oh, you know, so, no wonder why yeah. we get along. So where are you from originally? Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up in Queens, and then I went, uh, went to a couple of years of college before rock and roll 
got so into my skin that I was like, well, I'm going to become a singer. Moved back into Manhattan. And then in like 84, I moved in, moved to L.A. because in New York, it was all hip hop was exploding. Hmm. And, and it wasn't really, you know, if you were in a band, a rock band into rock music, L.A. was really the mecca of that. So I just, you know, packed up and moved out here. Okay. I'm in Queens now. That's a, there you I, go. Yeah, I grew up in Bayside, so. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah. I knew yeah. there. I knew there was a connection between us somewhere. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> I was gonna ask, with the reactions that you had to the Slash's Snake Pit uh, situation and the Chili Peppers, just your, I can't think of a. I may not be the most hard word, but the grace, honestly, that you took with it and understanding. I'm like, wh- where did you? get that where was that instilled in you because you know it's a pretty cutthroat business and for you to you know appreciate it for what they were which were ended up just being experiences you know what i mean yeah listen man perceptions are are everything and like i said i i wound up you know the quick the quick you know outline on my situation is like i put little caesar together and within three shows jimmy ivy wants to manage us Every label in L.A. are throwing open checkbooks at us. All these producers are saying MTV, they came to one of our shows, and Abby Konovich at the time, who was the president, he's like, you just shoot any, any one of these songs. Shoot the video. I'm immediately putting it in heavy rotation. And the labels knew about this stuff, too. So everyone was jumping up and down about us. Our attitude is, you know, listen, until you sell the record, you're not a rock star. So thank you for the interest. So when we got our huge record deal, we, we got the largest record deal ever given to a new band at that time in the history of the music business. Wow. Bob Rock jumps aboard to be our producer. And then when it all when all of these egos started battling and we were at the at the you know, at the burn pile at the end of that, after the all infighting, you know, I wound up, you know, getting into my own drug addict, you know, drug addiction. And when you walk through that, you finally get sober and you look back, you know, part of that is to be grateful, A, that you're still alive. And I know so many talented musicians all over this country, all over the world, who never got to be on MTV or, you know, do shows with, you know, ACDC and Brian Adams and Kiss and all these people. And so at the end of the day, there's so many things that contribute to what, be, you know, Making having talent and becoming commercially successful aren't necessarily hand in hand. Right. Two totally different things. Sometimes they go hand in hand, sometimes they don't. And I won't say what bands aren't the greatest players, writers, or singers or players in the world who have sold multi platinum. So that's the business side of things. So for me to know that, you know, guys like Slash, guys like Slee, and all these people thought enough of me to get it close enough to invite me into this incredible world that they create and occupy is an incredible compliment to me. So it validates that my choices were correct, thinking that I was good enough to be in this business Hmm. and the rest of it, man, that's up to the fates. You know, Hmm. if I'm in the right band at the right time in the right place with the right people involved, it's a, it's a huge ballet and symphony of, of things that, most people don't know about, you know, like when we signed to Geffen, I found out that there was 228 bands signed to the label. 
you heard of maybe 15 of them, <laughs> you know? Wow, okay. But these are the bands you don't hear about. And they go and they sign anybody and they just see if they can get something going. But it's, it's most of the time it's just the planets align, you know? Um, and it's only gotten tougher, you know? So for me, my perspective after all of that is just that I'm really grateful that I can say, yeah, man, I made music with Flea. You know, I made music with Slash. And we hung out and we talked about music just as two little kids, you know, because that's the thing about all these guys. The, the common thread between people like this, they act as they're, they're fans of music way before they're artists of music. So they'll talk like a 10-year-old kid about their favorite, you know, ACDC song or Led Zeppelin song. And it's because they have this passion for the music that drives them. And then they put their own talents and their own sensibilities, which makes them iconic artists in their own right. But they're really just like kids. And to sit around with those kind of people and talk about those passions and hold their, they hold their heroes up the same way people hold Flash up. You know, so when Flash hangs out with Billy Gibbons, he's looking at Billy Gibbons going, dude, you're like such a huge influence on me and you're so cool. And it's Slash, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the Slash, Billy Gibbons is just this really cool dude that, that really had so much influence on what he did. So it's great that that happens. So in the big picture of things, man, I, I'm just really grateful. I'm grateful that I, I've gotten to make music with these people, that I still get to make music, that I've earned the respect of these kind of people. Because, you know, any, anybody can be Millie Vanilli. doesn't mean <laughs> sold records. doesn't mean that they're really good or they're real at all. So that's the way I look at it. Well, that's uh, very well said. And I, I doubt I could speak for myself, but that was so applicable to my life. To be honest with you, you know, sometimes I just look back uh, under all the things that I've done. And, and this this included, honestly, talking to you, Ron Young, and right. and just how many radio people out there don't get the opportunity that I've had. And, you know, a lot of it has come through this GNR podcast, but I've been doing it since uh, I'll count college uh, 2005, something like that. I don't know. I've been doing it like 15 plus years, um, maybe longer. But I just look over. I'm like, oh, do I have Howard Stern money? No, I mean, not many people do, right. but right. Exactly. all the little things, and, and that's what's been great about here, uh, just again, just talking with you, it's just one of those moments for me. So yeah, it was applicable to me, and like I said, uh, I doubt I'm the only one who can relate your story to uh, to theirs, uh, and, and, you know, as far as just the outlook on things. Another interesting thing about that is, you know, I was, I'm lucky enough to have the awareness early on when I used to see some of my favorite rock stars. And becoming successful, a lot of them who have turmoil in their lives, a lot of them, when they became successful, that didn't, they had a hole inside of them and it didn't fill it. Guys like Bon Scott, you know, Jim Morrison, all these people that have this chaos in their life. And so if you don't become a rock star, that shouldn't create a hole in you. So the converse is also true. So I always try to remember that, that, Success, money, fame, all of the, you know, satellite craziness that goes around, what appears to be glamorous, it's actually a very lonely, isolated, disconnected life, the music business and being an artist. And a lot of people don't handle it well. And very true. Like for me, 
I'll tell you, man, if I became if I became what guys like Jimmy Iveen and Geffen told me I was going to be at that point in my life, I'd be dead now. There's no doubt about it. So I, I take all that with that grain of salt, you know, and I know a lot of guys now who are, you know, the music business has changed and people have gotten older. And there's a lot of guys I know who used to be selling multi-million records and now they sell thousands of records. And they're still out on the road, and they're doing it at a much, much smaller scale. But they got to do it to pay their rent or their mortgage or support their family. And, you know, it's a really rough life. So it's sometimes it can be a curse as much as it could be a blessing, you know. So, you know, it's, it's always – there's always more to be seen, you know. Completely understood. Uh, was there any point that you wanted to be an actor – or how did that Terminator thing? That was my terrible transition into the Terminator thing. Yeah, how did that situation well, that was, come up? Yeah, a, a quick, a quick abrupt seg- segue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll fix it in post. Fix I know. It in post. Yeah, probably not. Uh, you know the way that that came about, and again, this is more of that pinch me how grateful I am for the life that I've had. In the early '80s, when I was back in New York, I became friends with Catherine Bigelow. the famous film director, Academy Award winning. And she was just becoming a director and she needed music for one of her movies. So I I made some music for one of her movies. Actually, she wound up in the the company that, you know, promoted it or distributed, wanted to go with a completely different soundtrack. But through that, I became friends with her and we stayed friends for years. She was my wife at the time. They used to ride horses together. And so became good friends with Catherine. Well, Catherine wound up marrying Jim Cameron, James Cameron. And so we're hanging out with him and he's like, dude, you know, um, it's funny because Catherine did that movie called um, Point Break. Okay. And I was supposed to be the part that Anthony from the Chili Peppers had, that cameo that he had in that movie, huh. was supposed to be me. That's funny. We were out on tour with Kiss. So she used Anthony. We got back from the road and Jim's like, listen, I've got this part in this bar scene. I'd love you to, you know, come down and, you know, so I was like, yes, whatever, dude. I didn't even think about it. So, you know, I go down and we're shooting at this little country bar up here in the north of downtown LA. And oddly enough, that was the night that the Rodney King beating went went down. So there's all these cop cars flying around and Jim is screaming because, He's recording audio, and there's all these sirens. <laughs> we didn't know that two blocks away was this iconic, this historic event. Right. The Rodney King beating. But anyway, so like Jim goes, okay, listen, you'll come down. This is what we're going to do. Ron, you know, introduces me to Arnold. And, you know, he's like, he's going to hit, you know, he tells Arnold, he's going to hit you in the head with a pool cue. You're going to throw him through the window. He's like, okay, very good, very good, yo. <laughs> so... You know, I thought this was all funny and, and just kind of humorous. I never wanted to be an actor or anything. And then, you know, we start shooting it, and they got this whole box of balsa wood pool cues, you know, so it's light. And, and so the first time we do it, you know, I whack him in the head, and he goes, ow. And Jim goes, cut. He goes, you're the Terminator. Robots don't go out. They don't have feelings. He goes, yeah, but that hurt. You know? <laughs> so, and I'm like, oh, dude, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. 
then the next time I swung and it, I, I hit him in the neck, not in the head. Oh God! Then we did it again and it broke and it's it kind of wrapped around and hit him in the side of the face and he's like, <laughs> he goes, "Bring in the stunt double because I I'm not going to keep getting hit with this thing." So we tried putting up like a light pole behind his head and that didn't work. Finally. It was such a close-up. Jim's like, no, Arnold, I'm sorry, but you got to be in the shot. We can't use the stunt guy. So they wound up like sawing halfway through it, and finally we got the shot. And then the whole, you know, it wasn't me that went through the glass. It was actually a stuntman. Okay. But like at the time, that was the most expensive film ever made. In fact, Jim, while I was there, was you could hear him going through screaming matches with the producers. Because he was so over budget. And Jim said, listen, from here on out, I'm going to put my own money into this movie. And he did. And he got higher points and, of course, became richer for it. But but like things like when he called me and said, you want to be in the movie? He's like, listen, I want to make sure it looks right with the stunt guy. So they came and they took a clipping of my hair and made a, a, a wig that matched exactly to mine. He, I brought one of my tattoo artist friends up to paint all the tattoos on the stunt double for like six hours worth of work. <laughs> all of this stuff's expensive to do just for one shot, but that's the perfectionist that Jim Cameron is when he shoots a movie. So it was just such a blast. Arnold's hanging out and he's like just wearing like these shorts, smoking a cigar. You know, at this point, you know, he's he's like this really you know famous guy, and he was starting to get into politics and everything and. You know, so it was, it was just really interesting. And, like, Jim took me into the trailer. He goes, okay, we're going to – Arnold's a notoriously bad actor. And he can't remember his lines. So some of the reason why he's had some of these great iconic lines, like, I'll be back and hasta la vista, is because they can't give him a lot of dialogue. So they started to write these little catchphrases for him. So Jim took me into the trailer – after lunch that night, and he's like, okay, just watch how bad he is. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'll edit it, and we'll get it. He's like, but he's a bodybuilder. He's a personality. He's not, you know. A thespian. You know, he's not like Russell Crowe or anything, you know. <laughs> so, so it was pretty funny. It was a lot of fun to do. And it's funny how I never, ever dreamed you know, that that it would become one of the most iconic scenes of the movie, one of the most iconic scenes of film of all time, you know? So it, these are the kind of things when I wake up in the morning and I go, wow, what kind of life have you lived? I mean, <laughs> there's no reason that I should be that guy other than making friends with some people in a town of, of music business and film business people. So I even got my SAG card out of that. I had a lot of actor friends that were mad at me because that's how easy it was for me to get my SAG <laughs> card. It's just kind of funny, man. You know, this this world and this business, it, it's the ironies and the six degrees of separations that exist are really quite amazing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that the whole thing is, is bananas and I could have just went with the six degrees of GNR bacon because it's obviously GNR's uh, user. Uh, you could be mine is in uh, Terminator Two, but as soon as yeah. my my former co-host, uh, still current friend Scotto, uh, when he when I announced on social media that you're coming on, he's like, ask him about uh, getting thrown through the window in Terminator Two, right. and I knew exactly what he was talking about. Like, how many <laughs> movies could you, you know, because it, it's it's it's, it's not one scene. I know. Right. 
but I knew exactly what he was talking about. But um, I, I hope everyone, I'm sure many who go to a Little Caesar show know your your story or the band's story, but I really hope that people will get amped by listening to this podcast, honestly, because you just have a really profound and uh, grounded look on, on life and that, that really should be uh, emulated because you've, I mean, you're still doing what you love. You have you, yeah. you you have a great perspective on how to, to handle things and how to how to do things and how to carry yourself uh, despite these well, scary thanks, thanks, biker looks. I, look. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, no yeah. Problem. No, see, but it's funny because that's one of the things that always bit us in the butt. You know, we used to show up to do like radio all throughout the U.S. You know, and if you looked at our videos and our press, I mean, the secretaries would run in their office and lock the door. It's oh, like, God. oh my God, the the conquering horde is coming. And we're all like, we all like have college backgrounds. A couple of one of the guys had a little five-year-old daughter, and he used to go in and go, "Can I use your phone? I need to call my daughter." And they're like, "Oh my god, they're so sweet!" (laughs) And we look like these, you know, like we just, you know, broke out of prison, you know. But that's just the way we were just biker riding dudes, you know. Sure. You know, people used to think we were the road crew when we showed up at shows because. That's we didn't wear different stage clothes like all these other bands were doing. We got up there and our jeans that we were wearing during the afternoon. It's like that wasn't. It was about the music, you know. So, but yeah, you know, I really appreciate you saying that, you know. Um, and we were so grateful for our fans. They're not millions, but they're passionate. And the people that did wind up finding us in our 15 minutes of fame early on have stuck with the band. And you know, we put out a total of eight records, you know, over the years. And so, yeah, if anybody wants to check us out, please like us on Facebook because the more likes we get on Facebook, the more we can keep playing. And, you know, we don't charge money to meet the band like a lot of bands do to supplement the income. We go out after every show, thank everybody for coming, sign. I sign DVDs of Terminator every show. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, people bring it and they're like, you know, it's, it's just great. But, you know, to us, you know, there's listening to a CD. That's that's listening. But music is when you're in a room with a band. And they're playing, and your energy feeds their energy. And the music that gets made that night will never happen again. It's it's magical. And we give it its reverence. You know, we, we, we do it with grace, and we're, we're grateful for it. And the people that come and give us that energy, they're part of that experience. So to us, that's really music. So us going out and doing a show, you know, you can produce and manipulate anything in the studio. And now with computers and everything, you could do it even more. But what happens in a room, that's, that's magic. In all its perfection or all its pimples, you know, and we just love it. Obviously, I'm assuming it's the best place to, to find out your, your touring schedule, littlecaesar.net. Or is, is Facebook the best um, way to do it? More better on our Facebook page. We we still have tour dates from two years ago on our webpage. Okay. So, I don't even know, have we a webpage. Have, we don't have social media consultants, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we will be updating that. But, yeah, Facebook wound up being the go-to place. And, you know, like I say, man, we, we respond to everybody. Um, you know, sometimes it's a lot of work. But, you know, social media to us has is, is been a blessing. Because, you know, a lot of bands back in the day, if it wasn't for having a record label, you know, it was all big machinery. And now all of that's been taken out from the middle. 
you know, that puts bands directly in the path of people. And, you know, they can reach out to us and we can reach out back to them. And, you know, warts and all, man, we, we took, you know, our lives, you know, we're not trying to make it look like we're larger than life or that these rock stars live in this crazy, glamorous lifestyle. We weren't ever that in the day. We don't try to do that now. At this point in our lives, man, if you don't find the music attractive, you know, I'm, I can't be 29 for 20 years, you know? So we do it. We do it with our own flair and, and our own approach, but it's honest and it's sincere and it's connected to the people. And we have found that people appreciate that as much as all the larger than life stuff that some bands try to create. So it's a trade-off, but it, for us, it's, it's, it works perfectly for our mantra. And the best way for people to find you, because if you're like me, I mean, I'm sure you've gotten this many times over the years. It, it's not the pizza place, and I'm hungry. Oh, no. You want to hear something funny, Brando? Of course. To, today, even today, there, I got somebody wrote to me on the, on the Little Caesar page going, your pizza sucks, man. <laughs> I ordered a pizza last night, and it was cold, and there wasn't enough pepperoni. It's like, really? There's all of these band shots. People still <laughs> write about pizza to us on Facebook. If that isn't humbling, I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, it's you much know, different. No. Little Caesar it, official. Yeah, Little Caesar official, I guess it would be. But, you know, again, man, stuff like that keeps us humble. And I'll write back to him and go, I'm really sorry your pizza wasn't good. You know, come back in the store tomorrow. We'll make it up to you. <laughs> like, I'm not going to explain to them just how ignorant they are. I mean, what the hell, you know? I know. The, your your Facebook logo is a devil with all tattoos. Uh, so I guess yeah. uh, the, the Julius Caesar pizza pizza guy really, uh, really no, changed. <laughs> unless something went really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's a LTL Caesar band uh, on Twitter. Um, and the American Dream, is that the latest release? No, that's actually... Yeah, update your Twitter. Uh, American Dream we put out in 2012. Our latest release is called 8, because it's our 8th release. Very cool. So you got to update you gotta update the website. You got to up, update the Twitter, but at least uh, we know yeah, you're accessible know. and people that's can find right. you. It's like we're so busy just trying to live our lives that we're not... None of us are really the big social media folks. Uh, at least we just do it on Warren. And it's like, okay... The guitar player handles Instagram. <laughs> Another guy does Twitter. It's like, and neither of them are very good at it because you know one of our guitar players is a big amplifier company called Blackstar, right? Great, great amplifiers. And one of our guitar players is is the artist rep for, in the U.S. for Blackstar amps. So, you know, we don't do this for a living. Um, I mean, we go on tour all the time, but we've all picked careers where we can take some time off and do it, but. Mm. It, it's it's just sort of ironic that there's you know all these other connections to music type stuff. Anyway, he's so busy selling that kind of stuff, he's never doing the band's social media. So, but you know, we're a big family. We don't give each other you know guff about that kind of stuff. It's like okay, we'll update it next week, and that was like two years ago. So, <laughs> but yeah, Facebook. We're always on Facebook. Or I'm always on Facebook between my personal page and the band page, and we always respond to people. And uh, or the email on our website, I always get those emails and I respond. But uh, I got to get back in with the widget and get the, the all the new artwork and the new tour dates. Um, 
on our actual you know URL, littlecaesar.net. So. Well, I'm going to take care of the social media stuff for now because I want people to know about you and Little Caesar if they don't okay. already. You know, because, okay. uh, again, it's it's like with any – I think with any artist or even actor, if you really know – you can appreciate the art for what it is. But if you go in there knowing what you know makes this person tick – you know, and I think uh, you know the hour that we've been talking or so, uh, people have got a sense of what makes you tick, and I just think that makes your music just that much more full, that much more meaningful, and that much more enjoyable. So uh, I'm definitely okay. going to spread the word. So I appreciate your time, yeah, Ron. I really appreciate it, man. My pleasure. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks for for you know supporting us, and thanks for doing what you do for the GNR fans and all the satellites and bringing them all together. It's real creative, and, and it's, it's appreciated. Got to do what you got to do, and no one knows that better okay, than you. Yep. <laughs> Ron, you were great. Thank you so much uh, for coming Thank on today. You, man. I this really this was fun. It, man. Yep. Same here. Right on. You have a great day. Thank you too. Take care. That was a lot of fun. Another conversation I'm so glad to have the opportunity to have all through this six degrees of GNR bacon thing that we do as we look at life through guns and rose colored glasses. Uh, this Guns N' Roses-themed uh, bar mitzvah party of a podcast, whatever we call it, you know, it led us to Ron Young. Uh, not just the fact that he almost was in Slash Snake Pit. He was almost in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But, the you know, fun stories about hearing about Arnold and Terminator 2 and hearing his philosophy in life. And uh, just what I think is this is a, a perfect example of the type of interview that we do here an appetite for distortion. Really, I think Ron is just a perfect example of a guest that we get, the kind of conversation that we have and the fun that we have and things that we learn that we may not have known before. Good times, good times. So uh, once again, thank you to AFD show listener Anderson from San Antonio, Texas, for suggesting for suggesting Ron come on. Uh, we had a conflict as far as the time, so he couldn't be the co-host, but I offered it to him. Uh, but if you have a guest suggestion and or want to be a co-host of this podcast, of an episode of this podcast, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Message me. I will answer. Just like Ron Young is going to answer that little Caesar message on his Facebook, I'm always available. Uh, it, whether it's, again, getting a guest on or if you want to do a fan obsession segment where you get to tell your story as a Guns N' Roses fan. So really incorporating you in this podcast. So again, that does it for this episode. As far as upcoming guests, the best way to follow us and, and to keep track, and if you want to submit questions or, again, take part of these episodes, uh, follow us on social media, facebook.com slash the AFD show or on Twitter at the AFD show. And again, new Instagram. Just do a search for Appetite for Distortion. And thanks whether you listen to us via the iHeartRadio app. You found us on alternativenation.net, Spreaker, Stitcher, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for hanging out on Appetite for Distortion. So until next time, when will you see the next episode? Well, the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. I don't know as soon as the word, but you'll see it. No! security, I'm going home.